If you follow a liturgical calendar, you will note that we're in the season of Easter. The Easter cycle consists of the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, the Ascension, and Pentecost. There are 40 days between Easter and Ascension that record for us the time at which Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection. Then there are 10 days between Ascension and Pentecost where the followers of Jesus are in the upper room waiting on the, uh, the Holy Spirit. Now Luke is particularly stunning in what he reveals to us about the events during this cycle. You remember that Luke is both the author of the gospel, but also the book of Acts. Luke ends the telling of the gospel with Cleopas and a companion who were walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus shows up next to them as they're walking on the way, but he's not revealed to them. And he discovers that they are sad as they are recounting these mysterious events that have happened the last few days. And Jesus asked him about these events. And he tells them, uh, Cleopas and his companions say, we were hoping that uh, Jesus was the Messiah to come, the one who would redeem Israel. Jesus then takes them through the Old and the New Testament, the, law, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and, uh, uh, but only reveals himself to them when they come and bring Jesus into their home and they're breaking bread together and suddenly their eyes are opened and they say, weren't our hearts burning within us even as we walked along the road with him? Luke then ends his gospel with a quick account of the ascension and tells us that these disciples went back to Jerusalem and were in the temple praising and worshiping God. When he opens the book of Acts, he does so by saying, in the first book, I wrote to you what Jesus began to do and to teach, what Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication is clear that in the book of Acts, what he will do is uh, describe and give an account of what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection through the acts of the Holy Spirit in the disciples. But Luke pauses at the beginning of the book of Acts to take us back to a particular moment, one last time when all of the followers of Jesus uh, encounter the resurrected Christ before he is ascended. Now, if you put yourself in that place, if you were among the disciples of Jesus and you had one last opportunity before the ascension to talk with Jesus and to ask him any question that you might ask, what would you ask? If you had one question to ask Jesus before he ascended into heaven, what would it be that you would put before him? Luke records the question that the disciples ask in the sixth chapter, in the sixth verse of the book of Acts. And here's the question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? It's really a remarkable kind of question. I mean, we know from Cleopas and his companion that there was widespread disappointment that Jesus had not restored the kingdom. Now he's shown up with resurrection power. Is it now time that he will restore the pride lands, that he will come with power? But the question also betrays that the followers of Jesus are still looking for an earthly Messiah. They're still trying to stuff the kingdom of God into their own nationalistic hopes and their own nationalistic molds, putting new wine in old wineskins. 
they were still viewing Jesus as a localized teacher and a political ruler. And Jesus was on his way to becoming the universal transformer. All earthly kingdoms were being superseded by the spiritual kingdom that he was now establishing. His authority was no longer to be boundaried by his physical presence. And the answer that Jesus gives is equally as stunning. I always thought the answer to the question came immediately afterwards, that when the disciples said, will you restore the kingdom, that Jesus said, uh, no one is to know the days or the times. Question answered, uh, that, uh, that it's now uh, um, simply a mystery. E. Stanley Jones, for whom our School of World Missionary Evangelism is named, wrote a commentary on the book of Acts. Uh, the title of it is uh, Mastery. It was the last devotional that he wrote before he started writing his autobiography. And Stanley Jones finds that the answer to the disciples' questions is not in the immediate verse, but in the one following. The disciples ask, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responds, you don't know the times or the seasons. No one is to know that. But you will become my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The Great Commission given again. So notice the question and the response. The disciples ask, will you? Jesus responds, but you. In other words, the kingdom will be restored, but the kingdom will be restored through you. A fundamental shift is occurring in the mission of Jesus. There is now divine delegation, and it's captured by Luke in the way that he separates his gospel from the book of Acts and does so at the moment of the ascension. Prior to this time, the disciples could defer to Jesus, could look to Jesus for everything. Now Jesus was turning the tables and saying, now I'm looking to you. Prior to this time, you look to me to, uh, to use me for the sake of uh, your own kind of agendas and trying to uh, implement things, uh, but now God would use them. The kingdom that drew near in Jesus was to continue its expansion, but it was to continue through the work of the followers. In the same way that Jesus took on human flesh and become in, came, became incarnate to reveal what God was like, so now through the power of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God was to become incarnate. Stanley Jones suggests that without the incarnation, we would have had proclamation, but not demonstration that we would have tried to understand who God was through our own conceptions. And our conceptions of God would mediate who God was for us. But uh, because Jesus took on flesh, he revealed to us what God was like. And so uh, the, we beheld his glory, says the, uh, the writer of the Gospel of John. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. We know God because Jesus embodied God for us. Jesus was saying to them that I now want you to embody the kingdom, that what you were looking to me to restore, I now want to reveal to the world through you the way that the kingdom is like. Now there's no way that the disciples are going to pull that off by their own power. The only way that's gonna happen is by the empowerment of God giving them the capacity to do it. So here's the scene. The band of disciples are now shuttered in place. They're waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. 
There have been three years of preparation for this time. Uh, Jesus has been walking with them, commissioning them, sending them out on a mission, breaking through their illusions, exposing their vulnerabilities and their slowness of heart to comprehend. They've come to the end of themselves, knowing that at the critical hour, they all fled Jesus in fear. He's brought them to a place of one final surrender, the very citadel of their being, being surrendered fully to him. They're emptied of themselves and so able to be filled with the Spirit. There are no prerequisites to being there, no credentials, no ticket to be punched. They are here, surrendered, trying to apprehend the one that apprehended them. And E. Stanley Jones observes several details in Luke's account that are significant to the story. Luke tells us at the end of the gospel that they're continually in the, in the temple praising God and worshiping. But in the book of Acts, they're in the upper room. And what's the upper room but a home? Had the Holy Spirit come upon them in the temple, we probably would have concerned ourselves with holy places. God was concerned with holy people. I mean, you think about how many world religions sanctify particular places, and those places become uh, the way that religion attempts to call down God uh, to them. If the Holy Spirit had come upon them in the temple, we likely would go to the temple and through some kind of hocus-pocus try to bring God to us. Instead, God came to the home. So that uh, now uh, the temple of God was located in human hearts. The center of gravity had shifted from places to persons. And the fact of the Spirit coming upon uh, the disciples in a home turns the ordinary into the extraordinary. Stanley Jones suggests that the mother who is cooking dinner can call upon the power of the Spirit just as much as the priest in the temple is setting up the sacred vestments. The father bathing his children can be an act of worship, revealing something of the character of God. Luke also tells us there were 120 people gathered, not just the 12. If the Spirit had come only upon the 12, we probably would have elevated them above all others. We would have created a, a hierarchy of elitism. We'd have disputes about who was in the chain of command of the 12 to govern the church, like happened so often in particular different religions. But he came upon the 120. Uh, the Spirit poured out upon all flesh. It's also interesting to note who's among them. Luke tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Now that's pretty interesting because earlier, uh, Mary had already had deep spiritual experiences with the Spirit, right? The angel came to her and said, the Spirit will come upon you. It will overshadow you. It will cause you to be with child and you will conceive a son. Further, the angel had said to her, hail, O favored one. So we might expect that Mary would be given a particular social standing among these followers of Jesus. But instead, she's here with the 120. I imagine her sitting on the floor in prayer, worshiping her son. The Spirit has come. It's overshadowed her. It's been upon her. But she, like all of the rest of the disciples and like us, need the Spirit in her, filling her, in order for the kingdom to progress. 
The kingdom wasn't about social standing. There were no blood relations that determined who had access. Like in the ancient patriarchal system, the spirit was being poured out upon all flesh. We're also told that the brothers of Jesus are there. Now, I think this may be one of the greatest attestments to Jesus's divine nature. I mean, if anyone is going to be skeptical about your greatness, wouldn't it be the brothers that you grew up with? And in fact, these brothers are skeptical about Jesus. At one point, they come to try to take him away, thinking that he's gone mad. But now through the resurrection, they too have become convinced that he is the Messiah. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. He's also the Lord of the universe and the promised Messiah. And so they too are waiting in Jerusalem. The pouring out of the Spirit is not limited to priests, to prophets, or to the Pope. It is poured out upon all flesh. We might also ask, what is this group of 120 doing? Well, it's so interesting because the, the, uh, Luke tells us that they're in one accord, dedicating themselves to prayer, worshiping in the temple, and searching the scriptures. They're practicing the means of grace. They're waiting in the means of grace for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I think it would be fascinating to be there, studying the scriptures together. Can you imagine how many times they say, Cleopas, brother, tell us, what was it that Jesus said to you as he opened the scriptures? What did he reveal to you? When were your hearts burning and what was Jesus saying to you? Or can you imagine in their practice of daily Eucharist, whenever they came to that moment and they once again were breaking bread together, and they revisit that moment where Jesus opened their eyes. What a remarkable kind of experience that every time they broke bread together, uh, they revisited that moment. And then in the midst of this comes Pentecost, what you heard in the reading of the passage for today. The rushing wind of God, even as his breath blows over creation in the very beginning, so now the Ruach, the breath of God, recreating things again. The fire that shows up. A.W. Tozer said the holiness of God is so ineffable that only fire can give us a remote conception of what the holiness of God is. But this fire, this presence of God that was there on Mount Sinai in the lightning, that was in the burning bush that appeared to Moses, that was in the pillar of fire that led Israel into the promised land, the glow that was between the cherubim and seraphim and the holy place, the Shekinah glory of God now coming upon them, the cleansing, consuming fire in tongues above each of them, God's sanctifying presence, not just with them, but in them, written on their hearts. The empowerment to be witnesses, the restoration of the kingdom had begun. But E. Stanley Jones makes this observation as well. Why did Jesus tell them to wait specifically in Jerusalem? Well, he suggests that Jerusalem was the place of their greatest failure. It's where they had abandoned, denied, betrayed Jesus. John's gospel tells us that they were shuddered out of fear for the Jews. Had the Holy Spirit come upon them in some other place, perhaps in Galilee, they might have stayed there praising God and worshiping, but they may have become ecstatic in their spiritual experience, but largely irrelevant. Waiting in Jerusalem 
Jesus is asking them to face their biggest failure, <clears throat> to encounter the place where they had abandoned him, but now to do so with, uh, with power and with association. Because if you can confront a problem at its core, you can solve it for good. And you see it unfolding in the lives of the disciples. In Jungian psychology, a primary question that's oftentimes uh, asked is, as you meet with this client, what is this patient trying to avoid? What is it that they are running away from? In fact, Stanley Jones suggests that the biggest class of shut-ins today are not those who are not able to get out of their houses. It's those who are walking cases of shut-ins, who are outwardly out, but inwardly, they're still stifled, still inhibited from the freedom and the glory that the God wants to, uh, to give them. Oh, I find myself saying, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Free us from that. Give us the empowerment of your spirit. The 120 are gathered together, searching through the scriptures. And when the Holy Spirit falls, Peter knows immediately what this means. And he stands and preaches. From the book of Joel, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. Your men servants and your maid servants will receive the spirit. Not just your high-class educated women, but your maidservants, those at the very bottom of the social ladder who are no, have no elite status. The ground is all equal. And I will pour out my spirit on your men servants and your maidservants. The greatest gift is given not only of salvation, but the giving of the spirit, not only to men, but to women. Who could, who could uh, keep any lesser gifts from them? And I will pour out my spirit on your old and your young. There is no ageism, no antagonism between the generations. I mean, there's enough dunamis, enough dynamite to blow through all of the social institutions around the world today. What was happening was the embodiment, the unleashing of the kingdom of heaven. You can watch it in the transformation of the disciples. Prior to this time, they're jockeying for position. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they ask. There are resentments toward the alien. Shall we call down fire from heaven upon these? There's fear and self-righteousness as they all fall away. There's impotence in their spiritual lives as they're unable to cure a man whose son is thrown into the fire by an evil spirit. After the filling of the Holy Spirit, they're free from their vainglory. Their hearts are now open to the nations. Their inhibitions and their hesitancies are gone. A mastery comes over the challenges of life that, uh, that would be thrown in front of them. E. Stanley Jones takes this through the rest of the book of Acts and shows this mastery over suffering, over resentments, over jealousy, over dishonesty, over critical spirits. The spirit is blowing through their minds, their souls, their customs, cleansing, controlling, consecrating their urges. I mean, it's interesting that nowhere in the book of Acts do you have scandalous, uh, sensuous, or sexual kinds of encounters. The desires of the flesh are being reorganized. The ordering of their loves is not around sensuality or eros, but about agape, the palpability of the spirit. This is disruptive innovation to the nth degree the upending of social, economic, and political system. It's the basis of every revolution ever since. Think of it, 120 ragtag disciples filled with the power of the Spirit 
and more change comes in their generation in the next 30 years than has ever happened on the earth. In fact, every revolution from this time will find its basis in what happens at the day of Pentecost. And we can think about other kingdoms that have emerged but have since disappeared. Caesar, Napoleon, Hitler, their kingdoms came and are now gone. Yet the revolution that was started with these 120 uh, is still going on today. This ordinary people who are filled with extraordinary power of the spirit, with moral and spiritual mastery in how to live life. It's the kingdom in cameo, not yet fully realized, but present and embodied in a group of people. Well, dwelling in Jerusalem is our Jews from every nation around the world. They hear the rushing of the wind and the multitude comes together. And how interesting that it's the Spirit of God who reopens the upper room. Every nation is confused, but Peter stands and raises his voice. Now, without hesitation, no fear is gone, eager to be identified with the risen Messiah. And he says to these, you took Jesus by lawless hands, you crucified him, you put him to death, but God raised him from the dead, exalted him to the right hand of God, 3,000 people repent and are baptized. This is the explosive launch of the kingdom of God, the spreading of the gospel message through the disciples to the ends of the earth as their witnesses to those who come from all parts of the world. Well, one final word for me, Stanley Jones, to bring, bring Pentecost into the time of this uh, pandemic. Oftentimes we celebrate Pentecost as the birth of the church. Now that's perfectly appropriate. And yet Stanley Jones observes that the Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia only shows up in the book of Acts in Acts chapter nine. So what is birth? Well, the Greek word that is used in the second through the fourth chapters of the book of Acts is the word koinonia, fellowship. It's characterized for us in the continuation of what happens after Pentecost, that the disciples meet for teaching and proclamation, for worship, for the breaking of bread, and for fellowship, meaning it's particularly the sharing of possessions with any who had need. The church then, the ecclesia, grows out of the koinonia, the fellowship. It's renewed by this particular fellowship. In fact, Stanley Jones suggests that the koinonia is to the ecclesia what the soul is to the body. The soul gives it life. When the church becomes dispirited, the church has to recover the vibrancy of the fellowship, the koinonia the power of the spiritual community. History bears this out. In revitalization movement, it's oftentimes a visionary who sees the church operating in a different way and begins to pull people apart. Uh, the ecclesia, the ecclesiola in ecclesia, the church within the church. The church is a movement that renews the church as the institution. The reality is that the life of the church has always been centered in a smaller community of holy people who walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, so much more could be said, but what we find is after the Pentecost, as Pentecost happens, the followers of Jesus continue daily. They meet from house to house. 
They eat food together with gladness and simplicity of heart. Sounds a lot like the church in these days. When a lot of programming is shut down, when Christian lives are stripped down to its simplicity, it will probably be some time before we can meet again in large gatherings. But what is happening is the koinonia. Could it be that God is stoking the fires of our imaginations to hunger for and to experience again the koinonia coming into full strength? When social boundaries are disrupted, when new digital pathways like the Roman roads are being established along which the gospel may be carried to the ends of times, when uh, we're in days of reopening and our hearts are inclined as we encounter people to watch over them in love, to bear one another's burdens, it may just be that his empowerment will grant us favor with people from every nation once again. Will you? at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? But you, said Jesus, will be my witnesses, first in your Jerusalems, in Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. 